And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. We are looking this morning at one of the most familiar parables, but I think we'll see this morning that perhaps it's not as familiar as we might expect. It's actually kind of funny the way that it runs, and we have to wrestle with some of those aspects. To, to help us begin to think about the parable and the life and to set up some things that we'll discuss, I wanted to bring up the Volkswagen recall this week, which you may or may have not noticed. But Volkswagen faces a massive recall of cars, about half a million and uh, which caused their stock to plummet this week. Uh, but the reason for the recall is what is really interesting. Volkswagen installed software on their diesel cars that when the car is plugged up for an emissions test, the software kicks on and causes it to run in a way that it complies with emission standards. As soon as you unhook it from the emissions test, the software turns off those emission control devices, and the car runs uh, as it's designed to run, but also puts out 40% more pollutants into the environment. Right? Pretty savvy. You, you know, on one hand, you just have to look, did you really think you'd get away with that uh, in the midst of that? But the reason that I bring up this story and the reason that I found it interesting was I thought, my goodness, that is, I have that software. Right? As soon as I find myself in a, a certain situation or my image you know, is being tested in some way, my software kicks on to make sure that everything is running as it should be running. And then as soon as I'm out of that situation, that software can kick off and I can return to being selfish or greedy uh, it, it, as long as no one is, is seeing me necessarily. Right? To some degree, we all have software that is more concerned with our personal image and our own personal righteousness, 
than it actually is with how we really stand before God. How we stand before Him without reference to things around us and people around us. Image is one of the things that's heart, at the heart of the story of our parable. A lawyer stands up to test Jesus and he says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they have a short dialogue and then Jesus tells a story and the answer Jesus seems to give is, well, go and do more. Right? Saying, who's my neighbor? Well, I'm going to define your neighbor as very broadly as anyone who is in need and a neighbor is one who acts on behalf of someone who is in need. So whatever you've been thinking, you haven't been doing enough, go and do likewise is the end of the story. And then you will, and the question is at the beginning, how do I inherit eternal life? And the parable in and of itself is, is at least a little bit difficult to deal with in terms of it seems to be Jesus is simply saying, If you want to inherit eternal life, go and do more. That doesn't quite sound like the gospel, does it? I mean, isn't that the problem of all of Israel in the Old Testament? Go and do more doesn't really work. And yet, that seems to be the exhortation of Jesus as he comes to the end of the parable. So, obviously, we have to think about this perhaps in a little bit different light, and try to understand more deeply what's going on in the context of the lawyer who's standing up and the question that's being posed. So let's think about the setup here, the setup to the parable. A lawyer could have been a scribe. It was someone who was an expert in the law. Remember, the law for Israel is the Mosaic law. So someone who is qualified to act as a lawyer is someone who is intimate with the Mosaic law. And he gets up to test Jesus. What's the nature of the test? It's very hard to discern because uh, the lawyer tosses Jesus a softball. What must I do to inherit eternal life is an incredibly common question. It's a question that all of ancient Judaism was wrestling with as we enter the day of Jesus regarding messianic expectation. How do I get to be included with those who will be resurrected to life? That is a very frequently asked question. And the answer was very well known. The answer was uh, simply a summary of the great commandment, which is a summary of the Shema that occurs in Deuteronomy. Right? You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The answer, and even though interestingly Jesus has gotten the lawyer to answer his own question, right, which will help the lawyer wrestle really with where he stands, but it's exactly the same way that Jesus summarizes the law in Matthew and Mark. This question isn't particularly hard, and the answer is well known. So where is the nature of test? As the story proceeds, we start to see that there's more going on for the lawyer than simply trying to trap Jesus. He's trying to get an answer to a question that obviously pertains to him or is on his heart to some extent, because he presses further, even though they've agreed on the answer to the question, lawyer says, okay, who's my neighbor? It's one thing to say you have to love your neighbor as yourself, but who actually is my neighbor? And it says that the the lawyer is asking the question because he wants to justify himself or vindicate himself. He wants to, to prove that he is worthy to inherit eternal life. And we don't know if he's if he's thinking about past actions. Did I love my neighbor enough in the past to be justified? 
We don't know if he's looking to the future. What do I need to do moving forward to make sure that I'm justified? Maybe he's asking in terms of both. But it's a question that we all ask ourselves and as in all of our hearts is, what must I do to make sure that I am an inheritor of eternal life? What must I do to make sure that I am included in that number, that I meet the bar and that I am a good person? The notion of neighbor was a tough one to some extent in Jesus' day because there are aspects of the law that seem to emphasize that a neighbor is really an Israelite. Not only an Israelite, but a true Israelite. So if we're really talking about loving a neighbor as yourself, the neighbors we're talking about are those who are faithful Israel. In fact, those who considered them faithful Israel were expecting the Messiah to come and judge unfaithful Israel. But there are other parts of the law that say any sojourner should be treated as an Israelite. Any neighbor, anybody, if they come into your midst, should be treated as a neighbor with love and mercy and grace and compassion. And so they didn't know exactly where to draw these lines. And it's one of the questions. If, if in the lawyer's mind, if I make sure that I'm part of those who are going to inherit eternal life, means that I am faithful to the law. I have to understand what it means to be faithful to the law. So I've been pretty serious about loving God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. I've been very serious about the law. But have I been loving my neighbor as myself? Well, to answer that question, it depends on who is my neighbor. Now we see some of the problem. You see, Jesus has been doing a number of things, particularly that Luke draws out, that makes it seem like a neighbor is being expanded in terms of definition, dramatically. If you just look at Luke 9 and 10, which I'm going to summarize a couple of things, uh, it's an amazing period in Jesus' ministry because things begin to happen at a very quick pace and they begin to happen very dramatically. And there are two things that we need to take note of to understand the parable. The first is that Jesus sends out the apostles to all the villages in the countryside Preaching the gospel, healing the sick, and casting out demons. Right? After that, he sends out the 72, which is a larger group of people to do the same thing. More preaching the gospel, more healing the sick, more casting out of demons. So the kingdom is being proclaimed to all of Israel, all the countryside. There's no demarcation based on previous righteousness. In fact, some of those being favored are the least likely for the religious leaders. So the idea of who is my neighbor is being pushed. Furthermore, this action of preaching this message of the gospel and these dramatic acts are being done um, without any consultation of or reference of the religious leaders. Right? So put yourself in the shoes of a religious leader just for a moment. You've been faithful your whole life. You think you're squared away. You think if anybody deserves eternal life, it's you. The Messiah, or someone claiming to be the Messiah, arrives on the scene. The kingdom is preached, and he doesn't bother to talk to you. He doesn't target you. He doesn't ask for your help in talking about the kingdom. You seem to be very negotiable. So you can see the the lawyer's wheels beginning to turn. Well, okay, am I then really part of those who are going to inherit eternal life? Maybe I've got this neighbor piece wrong because... The way Jesus is going about neighbor is definitely different than the way we've gone about neighbor. The second thing that's happening in chapters 9 and 10 
as Jesus is starting to disclose what it means to be his disciple. Right? Not what it means solely to be faithful to the Mosaic laws the religious leaders understood. What Jesus is starting to say is, if anyone would come after me, he must pick up his cross and follow after me. And to uh, one who says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, he says, okay, but realize that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another one that Jesus says, come and follow me, and he says, sure, just let me go home and bury my dad first. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. And to another that Jesus calls and says, come follow me, he says, yes, just let me go home and say goodbye to everybody. And Jesus says, anyone who after putting his hand to the plow looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. We're starting to receive a very different definition of what it means to be faithful Israel. What it means to, be, what it means to walk with God in this world isn't, isn't fitting into the religious leaders or the lawyers' picture of what it means to adhere to the law. It is now requiring this personal notion of sacrifice of laying down one's life, of not taking up privileges and rights, and identifying with Jesus. And so again, we see the lawyer's wheels turning. What you're describing, Jesus, isn't like what we've been doing. What you're calling us to is very different. So again, what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to to follow after God and to to be one who is counted worthy of eternal life? These are the questions that are going on in that are produced by chapters 9 and 10 and cause the religious leader to begin to wrestle uh, with this. What we know of the religious leaders, among other things, from the Gospels, is that they they had developed a righteousness that was incredibly personal. It was really about them. In other words, how do I measure my righteousness and understand that I'm ready to inherit eternal life? Well, what have I been doing? What have I been thinking about? And there wasn't very much reference to those who are outside their immediate circles or their immediate heart. We, we have a similar tendency to say, am I right with God? Am I honoring God? Well, what am I doing? Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying? Am I, um, am I thinking on Him? Am I trying to do my work to His glory? And those are all good questions. But we tend not to ask questions that would make us think about how we're relating to the world around us, necessarily. Those can sometimes be harder and they're easier to avoid if we just focus on a sense of personal righteousness. An article uh, last week was talking about the pop music industry, which admittedly I don't know very much about. But one of the fascinating aspects of the pop music industry is that pop music stars don't write their own songs. I, I knew this a little bit, but I didn't know this in the way that it actually happens. So uh, there are five kings and queens of pop music, and you've never heard of them. They write the majority of hit songs that occur on the Billboard charts, and you couldn't pick them out of a crowd. The number one songwriter who's written more hits then the Beatles or Michael Jackson, is named Carl Martin Sandburg. He's a nobody from a, a no-name band in the 80s who started writing pop music and now uh, has more hits than anyone in history. Of course, not attributed to him only in the very fine print that you would have to dig through to understand that he wrote the song, 
and more significantly attributed to the person who's actually singing it. The next two biggest writers of American pop songs are two bald Norwegians. I kid you not. Mikael Eriksson and Ludvig Gotvald. Right? These guys uh, churn out hits for the biggest stars. And then uh, the fourth most significant is a uh, former nurse's aide named Esther Dean, I think from Oklahoma City, who's 33. She's the youngest, by the way. The others are in their 40s or older. Uh, just this summer on the Billboard charts, they had wrote uh, number one, Bad Blood by Taylor Swift, number three, Hey Mama by Nicki Minaj, number five, Worth It by Fifth Harmony, number seven, Can't Feel My Face by The Weeknd, <laughs> and number six, The Night is Still Young. And on and on it goes through the top 100. But what, so what was interesting about the article as it goes on is it's talking about how um, to be a pop star today is so much about image maintenance that you can't possibly write songs. Uh, Clive Davis, who is the biggest producer of stars, and his career uh, ranges really from the um, end of the 60s to 70s all the way through today. And you think of many of the top stars like Britney Spears and um, uh, Justin Timberlake and uh, the Backstreet Boys and, um, gosh, lots of other people I can't think of the name of. Um, he's produced all of these acts and has intentionally choreographed who they're going to be and what audience they're going to appeal to. He's manufactured uh, these, these groups. And he says, uh, one of my biggest problems is when a pop artist thinks that they can write their own song. And goes through examples of when pop artists did, they disappear. Because either they can't write the song or they don't have then the time to commit to their image. And, and uh, one of the people being interviewed said, yeah, can you imagine Will Smith writing the next Independence Day? Right? He did, there isn't time. He's a performer. That's what he has to do, and that's what pop stars do. And it made me think, my goodness, we, a society rallies around these people and understands them to be musicians in a certain sense and appreciates their music in a certain sense. And it's not their music. It's two bald Norwegians. It's all that they do are producing an image, a commodity that's bought, but its connection to the artistry is, is, somewhat, is somewhat vague. We live in an image-based culture. And so often we're bound up in evaluating our image in terms of how am I personally doing with God? Am I doing the components of image that make it necessary for my heart to be right with God? It's, it's, not, it's not terribly different than what we see in the first century amongst the lawyer and the religious leaders. Am I doing the basic components to make sure that my image is right so that I inherit eternal life? And so Jesus tells the most amazing story right, to interact with these conceptions and with what the lawyer is processing. He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. The story is pretty straightforward. Right? It doesn't take a ton of, of work to understand what's going on. The road to, uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem was very dangerous, even long before Jesus' day. It descended some 2,000 feet. Uh, it went about 17 miles, and it was very hilly, rocky, caves. And so there are lots of places for bandits to hide, and it was not uncommon for someone to be robbed. And so a man is making the journey, and he's robbed on that road. He's uh, beaten, he's stripped, he's left half dead. And the first person to come along is a priest, one who mediates between God and man in the temple. 
And you think, surely this man, who uh, is mankind's or Israel's representative to God, will do something on behalf of this man who's been beaten and broken down. And he passes by on the other side. Then comes a Levite. Right? Now, a Levite was someone who was a member of the tribe of Levi, but who wasn't a direct descendant of Aaron. Right? You only get to be a priest by being a descendant of Aaron, but the tribe of Levi is bigger than that. It includes Aaron's family, but it's bigger. So the Levite is like a priest's assistant. Is essentially, they did some temple activities, but not all the temple activities, but it's basically the next holiest position in Israel. You think, again, surely this representative of God is going to stop and extend mercy and honor the law in some capacity, and he goes by on the other side. Why did they go by? Why don't they interact with the man who's lying there half dead? Well, a lot of times I've heard this preached. You hear somebody say, well, the law makes it clear that if you come into contact with a dead body, you actually make yourself unclean. And the religious leaders are trying to make sure that they themselves don't become unclean, which isn't really quite accurate. There were provisions for handling uh, dead bodies, and Jesus has probably gone out of his way to say that the, the man is half dead simply to avoid this whole confusion. In other words, there's no reason, according to the law, that the men couldn't stop and help this person. In fact, they should have, right? seeing someone in need, a soldier, a, a, someone who needed their help. But they have no mercy, and they keep going. And so we don't know if they were too busy, if their agenda was more important than stopping to help, if they thought, uh, if I wait here, I might be attacked by bandits. Or if helping this person is probably going to be very involved. Right? Time, money, energy. What if he wakes up and he's a victim? And he expects me to help him rehabilitate his life. That is a lot of time and energy. You know what? God's providence will see to this. I'll just keep walking by. Right? We all know those lines. We've used them. When we, when we meet someone in need or an uncomfortable situation, something that might demand something significant of us, we have no shortage of excuses for reasons to get to the other side of the street and to keep walking on by. That we're pretty familiar with. Shockingly, Along the road comes the person least likely to help the man who was a Samaritan. Samaritans, uh, there's a long history of ethnic animosity between Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other. Um, We really don't have a a similar situation, um, clearly, in in this country, the way the Samaritans were somewhat related, related ethnically to the Israelites, but they had divided in history and... The Samaritans thought they had the corner on worshiping Yahweh. The Israelites thought they had the corner on worshiping Yahweh, and they basically hated each other. So the Samaritan comes down the road, and contrary to expectation, what is different of the Samaritan? What is the only thing that is that the, the only adjective applied to the Samaritan that makes him different from the other two people who have crossed the road and passed by is that he had compassion. For some reason, the Samaritan looks on the man and has mercy and pity and decides to act on his behalf. He binds up his wounds, which may have meant that he used his own clothes because most people in the ancient world had one set of clothes. He anoints his wounds with oil to bring comfort, with wine to disinfect, and he takes him to an inn. 
where he stays the night with him, and he pays enough money to care for the man for almost a month so that by the time he comes back, the man should be in good health, and he's coming back to check on him according to his interaction with the innkeeper. Right? He goes out of his way, uses his own resources, um, throws the man on his donkey and walks, sacrifices a night, sacrifices a fairly significant amount of money, all to make sure that the stranger lying on the road will be repaired to health. It's a beautiful picture of compassion. And so uh, Jesus presses the question with the lawyer. Right? The question that we started with, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus asked the man, well, which one of these men proved to be the man's neighbor? And the lawyer, who would have never guessed a Samaritan could be a neighbor to a Jew in any capacity, says, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him compassion. He's forced by the law to recognize that the one in the story who actually exercised compassion and was a neighbor was the Samaritan based on what he did. His actions reveal him to be a neighbor. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. That's hard. Right? Now we're back to the problem, which you mentioned at the beginning, which is this. The whole interaction begins with, how do I inherit eternal life? And it ends with, go and do more. In fact, go and do something that will be almost impossible for you to do, to show mercy and compassion to anyone you come upon who's in need. That's what it means to be faithful. That's what it means to be qualified to receive eternal life. So on one level, we have to admit that Jesus is pushing the boundaries of the lawyer. And all of Israel who have thought, you know, my righteousness is, is fairly personally defined. I only have to extend myself to a certain limit. I have honored God and will be honored by him in the end. Jesus says, no, you don't really get it. The call upon you, your reading of the law has been selfish and miserly. And the call upon you is much bigger than you've ever understood the law to be. So you're in trouble that way. But is there not something more going on here? The church always wrestled with this parable because it, seemed, it sounds so much like moralism. To go and do something more is the answer to how do I receive eternal life. And so from the very early church fathers all throughout history, you have a continuous stream of interpretation that says this parable, like actually many other parables, has to be read in more than one way. Right? There's no reason that a parable has one interpretation. That's probably a very limited way to think about it. If you think about the ways that you communicate, the stories that you tell, right? even as a preacher, when I choose story A and not story B, I'm choosing story A sometimes because I believe story A will accomplish three things rather than the two things story B will accomplish. Right? When we communicate, we're often seeking to do more than one thing at once. And I think this parable can only be read in understanding that Jesus is seeking to do more than one thing at once. See, the other thing that's happened in Luke 9 and 10 is Jesus has started to unveil his messianic identity. It's fancy theological jargon for saying Jesus has started to disclose that his road goes to the cross. In other words, Israel has expected a Messiah who will come and lead them in victory over everyone around them. And Jesus has said, no, actually, my road is going to take me to my death. And that's what's going to be victorious. And the people don't understand it yet, but this, this parable falls in the midst of it. And all of a sudden, you have the story of a man who is on a journey... Right? on the road to Jerusalem, and in the midst of this journey, he sees 
he's an outsider, but he sees someone who is in desperate need, who will die without his help. And so he comes and helps the person and restores him and makes sure, makes sure that he has life at significant expense to himself. Right? And the early church said, that story sounds pretty familiar. And so a significant line of interpretation on this parable is that you have to read it in understanding that the Good Samaritan is Jesus. They went a little overboard sometimes early on in the sense that uh, they would say that uh, the wine where the, uh, the inn is the church, the Good Samaritan is Jesus, the wine is the sacraments, and the oil is the Holy Spirit. And they had a flair for allegory. We don't necessarily have to go to that extent But I do think you have to understand the parable that at least one of the things Jesus is trying to do is to tell a story that's going to begin to help them conceptualize what it really means to be the Messiah. What it means to be the Messiah is to have resources and to be an outsider and to come right from God's presence and to expend significant resource so that those who are broken and those who are crushed by sin can actually be healed. Now, if that's the reading, if Jesus is the Good Samaritan, that means that you are the person lying on the ground. It means that you are the one who has been attacked by bandits and stripped and beaten and half dead. That's actually a great picture of all of us in sin. Lying there desperate, unable to help ourselves until the Good Samaritan or until Jesus comes and actually has mercy upon us for no reason except that he has compassion on our state and loves us. And it's only then that you begin to understand for, for Jesus to say something as crazy as go and do likewise, that's only possible if we are enabled from outside ourselves. And maybe that is just the point of the parable. That as the good Samaritan comes and gives life to the person lying on the ground, so Jesus comes to us and in great compassion and in freedom, has mercy on us and restores us in Him. And then realizing both our place as being hopeless and the compassion of God in Christ, we are now equipped as His church to show that same compassion. Having our wounds bound, being anointed and comforted, and our care being ensured, now we're able to turn around and to act like that good Samaritan, to act like Christ, to go and do likewise in a way that honors him. But that only comes, it only comes if you are willing to recognize that you are without hope, lying on that path. Right? If you start from a place like the lawyer, and you say, okay, I'm, I'm essentially not that bad off. I've got most things under control. There's one nuance of the law I need to figure out. Who's my neighbor? What's the boundary there? If that's your approach to righteousness, it will always fail. You can't manufacture righteousness. You're born in sin and guilt with a heart of stone. My favorite analogy, and I love it, is we live in a world of zombies. You watch The Walking Dead, it will be one of the clearest pictures of your existence. Because born into a world of zombies... We don't have life unless Christ gives it to us. And then as we continue to exist, we exist as those with life in the midst of those who are dead. That is the Bible's picture of the world. And it's only when you realize that you are dead, 
You are lying on the path. You are a zombie. You have a heart of stone. And Jesus has great compassion on you for no reason that we are aware of, except for the character of God and his love and his complete mercy. It should melt your heart so that you can say to the next person that you meet on the road, how could I but do the same? My priorities, my agenda, how busy I am to get somewhere and how important the things I have to do and how involved this victim might be, yeah, you are a lot more involved. You're involved to the point of the cross. When you understand that, you can go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are tender with us, that you have used all of your resources to bind up our wounds and to anoint us with oil and to disinfect us with wine and to give us life again. We give you thanks for that this morning and pray that understanding the radical mercy you have shown us, we would extend it to others. Equip us now in this as we come to your table. We pray in your name. Amen.